So, how are you, and how's the weather there? Uh, you know what? North Carolina's bipolar. <laughs> so, listen, Oklahoma has been bipolar this week. It was 40, and today it's going to be 70. So, it cannot decide. Last night, I was bundled up like an Eskimo, and today I'm in short sleeves. That's crazy, yep. isn't it? And it's got to be, yes. I don't know if that's hard on horses or not. I mean, I think sometimes it is, but. It is. I mean, it. what makes it hard, for, especially for my business, is I try to keep everything pretty slicked off and blanketed and slinkied, and you cannot decide, you know, like if it's, like we'll start doing one thing and then have to rush and take all the slinkies and blankets off, or take the blankets, leave the slinkies, but then by 1 o'clock we're having to go back and take the slinkies off. And by this evening, we'll have to have them all bundled back up. And I'm like, wish it would just That's pick. a lot of extra work. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. So you, yes. you sell horses. Do you breed them too, or do you just sell, or do you train? So, what yeah, all, do? all of it. So I originally grew up um, with race horses, and when I was probably like in the eighth grade, um, a place moved next door to my parents that imported warm blood. So I started working for them um, part time, and then that's kind of cool. Whole, Not a lot of people yeah. get to experience warm blood. No, so they imported warm blood from all over the world. And they had moved from Canada to Central Central U.S., which was Oklahoma, um, so that they could have horses basically going north, south, into the east coast and the west coast. And um, that was really fun, and it was a blessing. I, that's where I kind of developed my love for selling horses, and that's where I developed a lot of the things that I learned, like for photography and for video. So. When you were ahead I of the game. You were worked, way ahead of the game. I was young, too. Yes, I was young. And um, then they moved back to Canada because of the health insurance. They um, apartment got sick. And um, anyway, Sabina actually had stepped into the hay room and put a uh, pitchfork, like a old-timey three-pronged pitchfork in her yeah. calf. Oh. And they realized that, like, the health care here was not like it is in Canada, and they made the decision with, with him getting older and after that that they kind of wanted to go back to Canada. And I was devastated because I thought, I mean, I was, I loved it. I, that's all I wanted to do. So um, that was in 2006 or seven. Um, because I'll tell you, we had just started doing, a like, YouTube at that time was, like, brand new. And she was brilliant. She was so brilliant at, like, marketing and videoing. And, I mean, YouTube was like a baby at the time. And I was 17 or 18 probably. Um, I bet I, maybe I was 19. But, anyway, they decided they were going to move back to Canada. And I was devastated. So, yeah. I actually went to work at the track for a little bit and hated it. Hated it, hated it, hated it. Oh, really? And so what did you do there? Like at a racetrack? Like so, a racetrack? Yep. Yes. So my dad trains racehorses, and I had always helped him. And my dad is actually just a – my dad's a great horseman, and he's actually pretty soft when it comes to animals. 
And when I went to the track, I worked for another trainer, and I realized really quickly that, like, it's not the same for everybody, I guess. Like, I just expected everybody to, like, live, breathe, eat, like, love the horses. And I went to work for a pretty prominent trainer, and he had several sons, and I thought, man, this is going to, I'm going to learn so much, and I learned really fast that, like, it was a numbers game. They had probably 150 horses in training, and he would have to ask you, like, what horse is this, or, you know, where is this horse? The owners are coming, and I realized that it's just not the same. Like, it's, it was just a numbers game, and the very best horses they knew, and the rest of them were just in a bar for me it was like an eye-opening for me because I yeah no I'm totally agree with you if people haven't yeah. seen those both perspectives like you have or like like mm-hmm. I have we've seen both kind of both sides of it it is very yeah. eye-opening you're like oh this is not just a pet people run it as a business what yes playing devil's now, advocate it, I get it yeah it's fine like I mean the but, horses were really well taken care of they looked like a million dollars I mean the grooms took care of about 10 horses each, and um, that was just kind of the rotation. Um, you know, you had about 10 horses, and basically the grooms took care of them, and, um, you know, horses galloped every other day, um, and then they would let us know when certain horses needed to stand or work or they were getting ready to enter something, and they also kind of grouped horses, so the way they did it was just like a factory. You know, I mean, it was just yeah. more of a factory mentality. And um, honestly, I think programs like that are only as good as the groom that has a horse because if horses aren't eating or if horses aren't um, doing right, the trainer, who is really the brilliant one, unfortunately only knows if their staff tell them. Like, you, that, that trainer cannot be in every barn. And, and see every horse every day. So right. it was pretty eye-opening. I, I was there a little while, and I decided that maybe I wanted to do cutting horses. Um, so I got a job. I got offered a job at the time um, with a cutting horse trainer. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave the track. I think I want to do that. And I was there one week. <laughs> and I had a great Oh, one wow. So, yeah. So, like, I don't start a job. And... I, I well, hold on, wait. So you left because yeah. of it was like just not it was not what you thought it was, or was something crazy? Yeah. Happened? So I mean, like, being at the track, like I say, like I didn't work there very long. Like I, I worked at the racetrack for somebody besides my dad for probably a year. Um, yeah. So I mean, I say not very long, but like a year, and then that's um, a good time. Yeah. I mean, I'm because see, here's the thing: it the horses were really well taken care of. And it was a great program, and the pay was good, and I feel like I learned a little bit. But I also feel like I was kind of valued there because I had a little bit more of an insight. Like, if if I went to feed breakfast in the nighttime feed was still there, I knew to take the nighttime feed out, and I would call and say, hey, you know, Shinsuk isn't eating. We probably need to get them on ultra meds. So in a program like that, I feel like I was a little bit of an asset. And I say, like, oh, I didn't last a long time. I just didn't make that permanent, basically. But I got offered a job at a cutting horse facility, and I was just kind of burnt out at the racetrack. And I was like, you know what? Definitely. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do something different. Girl, it lasted a week. I bet I was, I mean, 10 days. Like, 
I got one paycheck and I didn't even stay the second week to be paid and I didn't even request pay for the days I was there. It, I was mortified. I, at that time, I had just never been around anybody that had rode in spurs. I know that sounds so stupid and somebody's going to listen to this and be like, that's not abnormal, but. Well, no, you know what? No, no, no. Let me say something really quick. The horse industry, I'm diehard about this. The You're not born on a horse. So anybody out there that's, you know, grand champion or not grand champion in it for years or not in it for years, you don't know anything until you know it. Like, you don't, I mean, you can't fault somebody for not knowing something. Absolutely. So, like, in the racehorse industry and in the English industry, which at this point is pretty much all I know besides I had a barrel horse and had been to a couple of youth rodeos and did not take that serious. And the only reason I had a barrel horse is because being him solving, he owned Kenco cattle. He has since passed away. And a man named Bill Medlin gave me a barrel horse. My dad trained their racehorses. He had a champion 870 horse for them named High Siete. And they gave me um, Jenna. Dean's oldest daughter went was going to college, and her barrel horse was like 16 or 17. And he just called my dad and was like, hey, I want to give Top Gun to Tara. And I bet I probably didn't go to 10 barrel races. So a couple years into working for Hartman and Sabina, I started brokering maybe a year in. I started having Sabina, his wife, help me put some horses on the Internet. I mean, I was 13, 14, and um, I was putting them on, like, HorseCity.com, which had BarrelHorses.com, and Barrel Horse World at some point right around there, you know, came out. And, um, we were just... This was long before Facebook selling. Like, some of these new yes. people would have no idea what This was no even before MySpace. Yes, this was even before MySpace. So, oh, wow. Um, yes. So I remember getting like a MySpace when I was in high school at some point, and I had already been selling horses on these platforms. But Sabina was helping me take pictures, and we were taking them with like cameras that you had to roll. Like you had to roll it and then take them and get them developed. I didn't even own a camera. I was having to buy like the little cameras. And that was kind of normal back then. And you would take the photos and pray for the best and, you know, take them and have them developed. And then she had a scanner, and she was helping me scan the photos. And I remember when video became a thing, and she started helping me video them. So we used to just put a lot of photos, and people would come buy them off the track. And I would, like, make a list of the horses, put them online. And trainers were giving me, like, 10% commission to sell horses, not just my dad. I mean, it was lots of trainers. And I was young, and I loved it. I loved it. I was making extra. I didn't even finish high school. I was making enough money in commission that I didn't even see the point in finishing high school. I was just. So when they uh, moved. No, no, I don't blame you. <laughs> yes. When they moved back to Canada, I was kind of devastated because it was perfect. Like, I was, at this point, video had kind of become a thing, and you could upload video clips. And Sabina had gone and bought this old school camera, and we would take it and have the VHS tapes converted to a CD and put it on the computer and it would take just an hour VHS. or two. Oh, God. Yes. It, we, it, we would put it on these CDs and then it would have to go on um, the computer and it would take like an hour or two for it to upload and we would get it on YouTube. So I had started going and, and buying a couple at this point, a couple of Colts off the track so that I could actually ride them and video them and not just get photos. And it was like, 
brand new. So when they moved, I was like devastated. I was like, oh my gosh, because these people, she was, she was very creative and she was helping me kind of learn all the ins and outs. So like I said, when she moved back to Canada, I went to work at the track and I was working, um, days at the track in the morning. And then, um, I simultaneously, um, simultaneously was working nights at Hooters, and I, I used to work really, at Hooters. Don't you dare laugh. Yes. Girl, I worked at Hooters, nope, and it girl, was the listen. best time of my life. I loved it. I started, so since I didn't really want to go to high school, I started working Monday night, like Sundays and Mondays for football. Um, and it's Friday good life. <laughs> listen, when I was 16, because they had a shift that was like 6.30 in the evening, and like, mm-hmm. My dad trained racehorses. They did English, and, like, nobody did night stuff. They used to not have night racing except for at a very few select tracks. So way back then, we raced during the day. So, like, by 6.30, we would feed the racehorses at, like, 3.34 because we started so early. So I would work the 6.30 to, like, 10 o'clock as a hostess. I literally started as a hostess. And then I waited tables a little bit, but once I got to the racetrack, I did not like it. (laughs) Never. In the English world, in the race world, I had never been around horses that had been spurred or that somebody wore big spurs. And, like, so part of it was that we would have to put Crisco on these horses' sides to stop the spurring. And then the lady was like, oh, put, put Crisco to stop that. And then the husband would get horribly pissed because they would gunk up his spurs. And I just did not know what to do. They had a yeah. thing called a tack collar, and it had spikes. And they would put it on these horses to, like, I, I think it's pretty common in the cutting world. I don't know. They acted like it was. And I don't know enough about it. So I don't want to speak for the whole industry by anybody's standard. I worked for right. one person. I didn't make it two weeks. And I just, it, it was very obvious that it was widely accepted in their environment and like I couldn't handle it. Does that make sense? Like I well, wasn't yeah. you know, like whistleblow and tell anybody because everybody around them was like, This is normal and you're the problem, not not the training method. So have you been back into the cutting industry since then or no? Yeah, so I've since gone and taken lessons with um Wayne Sesney. I went to his place and took lessons and he was fantastic. And it was nothing like that at all whatsoever. So yeah. that's how come I know, like, I, I'm not going to speak for the whole industry. I'm just going to say. You might have had a bad camp. apple. Yeah, like in that camp with that man and his wife and their daughter was a little younger than me. And kind of the people around them. Because his son also trained, but he was older. Um, it was just accepted. And, like, I was the problem. So. There, it wasn't like me staying long-term was going to change anything. And I honestly uh, had mentioned it to my dad at the time, kind of what was going on. And he said, you know, here's kind of the thing about that. When people have their methods and they've trained a champion, you're not going to change them. He said, just like some trainers on the track whip their horses. Some trainers on the track use hot shots to get them to leave the gate. Like, not everybody believes in that. Not everybody um, is going to do it, but you're not going to change people when that's their viewpoint. 
And my dad. Yeah. Well, that's like the sa- you remember the the saddlebred industry or the gated industry where for so yes. many years they were um what's the right word scorching or putting blistering. gas on it's, yeah blistering um you know I I see both sides of it so what I didn't want to do was stay there long term and then that become the normal for me and that was yeah. kind of what my dad said like. Over time, these people don't realize they're doing anything wrong because it's normal for them. Just like people that are, like, in abusive relationships. Like, at first, you're shocked, and you're like, wait, this isn't right. Like, I can change this. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can. But what actually happens is you change. I mean, even if they get 1% better, you get 1% worse. It just, that is, you are influenced. And my dad was just concerned that over time, I would accept that, you know, or, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And I think now looking back on it, I've been around the cell barn so much, and I've seen so much worse now that I'm well, yeah, and now that have stitches in their mouth where people have ripped the bit through, like, and I've oh them out God. of the cell barn. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen horrific things now. But at the time, I had not, I had not seen that yeah today i could work at a place like that and then just be like hey we need to you know or whatever i probably wouldn't wouldn't work there but but well, now I mean, i've just seen way worse i can i can see what you're saying because like if everybody's doing it your first instinct is like oh okay well there must not be nothing wrong with this if everybody else agrees with it but then over time i think you know Certain things are brought to light and certain perspectives are changed, like with the gated horses and stuff. They, they, they that's illegal as hell. You can't do that. Like, you know, the, the thing about the gated horse industry, I also think that, that they sometimes, and I'm, I'm starting to see it with the racehorse industry, the thoroughbreds especially, they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice but to change because right. it has been brought to the public light and before where something was taken by certain people to extremes. Now, even on what would be considered like a normal level, it's not even accepted because that's the gateway to it being abusive. And so I thought the blistering and soaring was malicious. Like, oh, my God, because I've seen horses blistered in the racehorse industry, and I never thought that was malicious. So the way that PETA explained it in the big lick industry is like they are blistering these horses' pasterns and putting weight on them and they are hurting them to make yeah. it. What I didn't realize is that's not exactly the truth. They would put the padded shoes on these horses, which unfortunately were causing some deep digital flexor problems and some suspensory problems, and they were blistering the horses just like people did on the racetrack to increase circulation to those areas to heal wounds, or to heal, not wounds, but to heal injuries. And the problem is, is that the shoes are causing soft tissue injuries that are leading to them having to blister these horses. And I hope that that makes sense. Like, I'm going to have to research that. Yeah, like, no, no, I did. Like, I was asking questions. I was like, but how can you spray gasoline? She's like, we don't spray gasoline on them. And I'm like, I'm reading it. And she was like, no, like, we blistered that horse. And I'm like, yes, like, they call it soaring. You know, they're soaring them. Yeah. But, like, you and I would know it as a blister. Like, they're blister. But that sounds just as bad. If you you don't know anything about horses, 
somebody telling you these people are blistering these horses' skins and applying chains is like, I'm dumbfounded. But right, right. The, like twitching but a, a horse. Lot of like the, if somebody, yeah. Like you know, we used to twitch. We used to have to twitch ours. Certain we used to twitch ours to do stuff. And if the average person right. just walks up and. And tell somebody like grabbing this horse's ear and just yeah, like, grab this know. horse's whip and apply this chain and twist it and tell right. You know, they'd, they'd be like, oh good, it's abused, and Absolutely. we'd be sitting here going, no, it's not. Yeah. What? So the problem with their industry is that the wrong. I don't even want to say the wrong descriptions were given, and I even feel bad talking about it because no matter what I say. Somebody's going to turn it into I support it or whatever. I, I do not support, like, the big lick industry because the shoes, the shoes are unnecessary right. in a manner. And, and hear me out. Like, they are causing deep digital flexor tendon problems. They are causing suspensory problems. They are causing problems that are leading to horses having to live in standing bandages and be blistered on a regular basis like it's just normal. Like when a racehorse is blistered, it's because they've bowed a tendon. And it's it's like one in 80 horses standing in the barn might have a little bow or a little suspensory problem. But like, it's just an everyday practice on big lick horses to blister and keep them in standing bandages because those shoes. Okay, so I had never owned a gated horse that I had known of. I actually now, knowing what I know, my dad bought me a horse when I was like 12, maybe 10, out of the El Paso cell barn from Joe Rios. It was a black and white little pony. And we always thought that he was like, maybe like had some stifle problems. <laughs> we didn't know. Now looking back on it, I think he was like, a, maybe he had a little Pasifino or something in him. Like when he walked, he had the fastest walk in the whole world, and he, his trot was awful, and his lope was to die for. Like, who would have ever known? But so, like, if you weren't loping, this thing was bad. It was bad. And now, looking back, I think he might have had, like, Pasifino or Peruvian because he paddled in the front end real bad. Like, uh-huh. he didn't have, like, a wheel that went straight. Like, he paddled in the front end, and we thought his stifles were a little sticky in the back. And now, looking back, I think he was just gated, and nobody knew, like, my dad trained race horses. We had never been around. I, right. You I didn't know what to expect. Yes. Like, plus I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is not, I mean, Andalusians. And, yeah, so we had no idea. But. They say it's a smooth ride. Oh, my. They're the best. I love gated horses now. I've made more money. I bet I've made a million dollars off of gated horses in my life, and that is not even an exaggeration. I love them. People will call me and be like, oh, it's gated, and I'm like, I'm buying it. What do you want for it? I love them. I love them. I love them. I love I love Tennessee Walkers. I love Morgans. I love, I love them all. I love Peruvians. I love them all. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We can talk about about that. But you're right. Nobody, you never really hear people complain about gated horses. They love them. They love everything about them once they get them. Anyway, I get this gated horse. I did not know he was gated. I called the vet out. Dr. Marcotte is the vet that at the time we were in Oklahoma and I was breaking yearlings for the racetrack. And I was so naive at the time. So Jacob would bring me like a load of horses. Every once in a while. It started out where I was going down and, like, buying one or two before they would ship them to slaughter 
and then just selling them to the public, like, after a month of me writing them. And then it got to where I was kind of selling those fast, and I needed more to where, like, once a week, Jacob was bringing me a, the horses that he thought rode. You know what I mean? Like, the ones that they kind of had a pretty good idea they rode. So Jacob brings me this big sorrel gilding, and um, I can't remember. I think it was Dr. Marcotte or Dr. Stites. I don't remember because we were in Oklahoma. I don't remember if I was in Inola or Salisaw, but long story short, I called the vet out. I thought he was foundering. Like, got him off the trailer, put him in the stall. The next day I go out, we saddle him and go to get on him, and, like, all of his legs move in the same direction. And I thought he was, like, either neurologic or foundering or something was, girl, he was a standard bred. Oh, wow. And I had never seen a horse pay. You know, where the legs on the right side and the legs on the left side go together. Right. I call the vet out. And I'm like, this horse is injured its spine or something. It might be foundering. I don't know what's wrong with it. The vet comes out and is, like, trying to figure out what I'm seeing. And, of course, they have their assistant, like, you know, jogging it, trotting it. And, like, I'm standing there. I'm like, see? And they're like, no, I don't see. Like, what? And I'm like, look at its legs. And he looks at me and he said, do you not realize you're looking at a gated horse? And I'm like, what? And he's like, it's it's a standard brand. And I'm like, that horse was old enough. He was still tattooed in the lip, not on the neck. Uh-huh. He walks over to him, flips his mane around, flips his lip. And he's like, see, he's tattooed. He's a racehorse. And I'm like. Who would race this? Like, it's broken. And he literally looked at me and he was like, it's gated and it's pacing. And he was like, I mean, it's got some arthritis, but he was like, nothing. I mean, this horse is baseline okay, you know, but like, do you not, you don't realize this is. And I was like, no, (laughs) I had no idea. So that was my first experience. And that was like in 2013 with like having. Well, you can blame yourself if you didn't know. I mean, if you didn't know, I had never know. Right. I did not know. And he was older. And all I could think is the thing is, like, bumped his head. And he's, like, uncoordinated. Because when we got on him, he kind of took off. But his right legs and his left legs were going to get, you know, like, yeah, together. He was pacing. I had no clue. Girl, I, that was in 2013. And then by 2017, I was going to Knoxville and buying all the gated horses I because they were coming out of the east. Oh man, it took about it took about a year, but I got to where I thought I was the gated horse queen. I loved them. I'm telling you, I by 2017 I was buying mostly gated horses and loving every second of it. But man, oh, well, man. I mean that's just proof that you can be in the horse industry for so long and still learn something new. I mean, like it's like you know, oh, you just every don't know it single all. breed. So I raise Frisians. And I now have a handful of gypsy banners. Um, I bought one, and it was such a shit show that I had some customers reach out to me, two different customers, that were kind of getting out of horses, and they both had gypsy banner mares. One had two and one had three. Yes, and both of those people sold me their mares. So I now have some gypsy banner mares, and I have a stud. I don't know what's going to come of that, but um, but regardless, I've got on. So. Isn't Gypsy Banner the mix of a regular Isn't there a certain one that they're mixing banners with Frisians? Or okay, that's a draft horse, I think. 
a gypsian is, I think, okay, so a drum, a gypsy drum is where you mix a gypsy and a, like, shire or Clydesdale, like a big horse. Right. And yes. then um, gypsy banners and gypsy horses are, like, and, it, and it's different because there's multiple associations. So, like, in the AQHA, there's one registry, and that's what I'm used to. In the jockey club, there's one registry. But when you start dealing with what I call novelty-type horses, like gypsies, Frisians, yeah. um, there's, like, multiple associations for purebreds of both. And then most of the associations allow horses that are, like, 25%. You know, like, you can still register your horse that's not a purebred, and I'm not used to that, so I... That has and then there's actually a lot. Yes, like the early and there's, 1980s, like, the International 1990s. Draft. Yes, and the International Draft Association, and there's Frisian Sport Horses and International Frisian... I mean, it's... And don't don't quote me on any of the names, because I'm not... Well, I mean, there's a red one, point, too, isn't it? There's a specific red yeah, or... Yeah, fire Yes, yeah. fire Frisians is what they call them. And um, I have some Imperial Frisians, which are Appaloosa Frisians. Really? They're knob sugar crosses. Mm-hmm. I and I have that. one. Yep, I have one that's by Grand Design, which is, he's, I think, three-quarter Frisian and 25% Appaloosa. And they are... Is it got a blanket on it? Um, I have one leopard, and he's a Grula. He's a Grula, but he's leopard. And I have a grayish Grula. I don't know what color. She's changed colors 20 times since I bought her. Um, and she has a blanket. And That's then I have so black. Cool. Yep, I have, um, I have five solid black mares. And they're mm-hmm. anywhere from 50 to 75% Frisian. And then my Imperials are like 60-something percent because my Imperials are by a heritage horse, out of grand design daughters, and, the, and then Grand Design was an Appaloosa, and he was bred on the bottom side to warm blood type mares. So technically, some people go, oh, that's an Imperial Frisian. And then other people go, it's not an Imperial Frisian because they're not out of knob stroopers, which is a specific spotted warm blood. So oh, I just yeah. call them spotted Frisians. And I've bought a couple of um, spotted drafts. I love, not spotted like, okay, so spotted saddle horses are paint. Most of them are paint, but you think Appaloosa when you say spot. I was just going to ask you, what's the difference? Yeah, but in draft, yeah, but in draft, there are spotted draft, which are Appaloosa type draft, and then painted draft, which are painted draft. But in saddle horses, which are gated horses, a spotted saddle horse can be paint, Appaloosa, like it's just spot, it's a registry for spotted saddle horses. And really, they don't basically separate them out. No, I've had so many spotted saddle horses that are just Tobiano or Overo or yeah, there's paints. And I don't know why they're not called painted saddle horses. They're called spotted saddle horses. So there's just tons of stuff in the horse world that now that I trade horses and I buy anything that I like, I don't care if it's a donkey. I don't care if it's a <laughs> henny. I love all equine all of them. So I've owned everything. Somebody asked me the other day, is there anything you've never owned? And I'm like, I don't know. I've had a Olympus honor. I've had an Akateki. I've had. Oh, the Olympus honor would have been cool. I've always wanted to go see them do like their show, I you know? One. Yes. So I bought one out of New Holland, Pennsylvania. Well, I didn't buy it. Gary bought it when he was back east. 
and it was a registered 18-year-old mare. And she was a registered lymphazoner, and a lady from Maryland bought her. So we brought her all the way to Louisiana. She went all the way back to Maryland. She ended up being in foal, and she probably got bred not at New Holland, but she had been through several cell barns. And she ended up having the coolest white baby. He was born, um, I thought he was going to be Cremello, but anyway, years later, so like maybe last year, we ended up buying the baby back from her, and he was a pony. Like, she had gotten bred at the cell barn to some kind of a pony. And I called him Cupid, and I sold him to Marley Nell. Mm -hmm. So Marley ended up with Cupid, but he was half Limpa's honor, and... People would be like, how do you know? And I'm like, because I, I bought his mom. She was 18 years old. And um, and the reason I say I bought her is she came from New Holland and Gary brought her in. But I had never owned one. So I ended up buying her and fattening her up. And then I sold her on Dream Horse or like a private site like that. And lady from Maryland had a couple of them. And she bought her. And she was at bread. <laughs> yep. So what's kind of crazy is so through packers and stockyards, which I, I have to be bonded, if you buy horses out of auction and you sell them Well wait, so hold on. you don't do you run an you don't run an auction or do you run an auction? Um, so I had an online auction that I did some of my own horses on and then yeah. um Jacob has not decided what he wants to do if he wants to run a sell or not, which I'm not I don't have time. I told him I would help as much as I could at this point. Like, I want him to be successful. We have a daughter. So that's important to me for him to be, you know, happy, successful, whatever. But um, I don't want to do that. I Because, and I'll tell you why. When you run an auction, your livelihood depends on not only your buyers, but your consigners. And, like, I do not. And I, I just, I don't even have to bite my tongue. I think that the horse industry is so dishonest and it is so shady. And I think that a lot of horse traders are mean to their horses. And I don't want to be at a facility where, like, I honestly worry that I would just run a lot of people off. You know, yeah. like, I would not be able to be diplomatic in a lot of situations. I just, and that's, you know, it's funny because I have a group of women online that, constantly just make stuff up and they they don't allow they have they they invite people into this group right but then if you like they have me blocked so i can't defend myself but they will not let we all have a mean girl group i got a mean girl group it's okay yeah yeah so yeah i don't know that everybody does but people like you and i do and then um what, I don't know if it's a compliment or a hindrance yeah. at this point, but it's like yeah. well like so what you have said, a lot of them have me blocked too. And well, for me, I'm not worried about me and I don't mean to say that in a round way, but I, I know what happened. Like I know what well, the truth I read is. I read so, screenshots the other day, you know, where they were trying to say that my entire following was compromised of bot account and that I had hundreds of Google phone numbers. To make different, fa- listen, I have two Facebooks, one in a backup account, and I finally, I mean, it, the, the stuff they say is outrageous. I mean, it is, yeah. it's outrageous. It's- well, it's like what I told you, I think social media, and I, you can probably agree with this. So I used to run a business long before it was ever on social media, and yeah. I never had problems. Nobody could mm-hmm. check up on me. Nobody watched me. I did my thing. Our word was gold. We didn't have any, I had no problems. 
Mm-hmm. Now you get a business and you put it on social media, you end up having more problems. And I think, quite frankly, it's because people can say and do what they want, regardless of what, if it's true or not, with no consequence. I have told people this. There are 50-something hundred people that they've recruited into this group, almost 6,000 people, and 99% of them are blocked from being able to comment. You cannot comment. They have to approve it. And if it does not suit their narrative, they're not going to. So they do it. So that people just have to be on the sidelines and watch what they say that suits their narrative. And that right there alone tells you that that they yeah. know that they're dishonest. But, listen, I have saved more trouble by that group because people will say, well, I read this or I said this. Listen, if you read that and you, I, I guess, um, I don't know the word for it, but, like, if you play into that, you're a, you're a problem. Yeah. Like, you're a problem. Yeah. And, and so I feel like it's kind of like the trouble. Like, if you bring that group up to me in a transaction, I am not going to sell the horse to you. I'm just not going to because I am not going to have clientele that have time or the desire to entertain that kind of stuff. And I have not sold horses to people that approached me and wanted to discuss that because here's the thing. If you will sit online and, and read that, if something doesn't go right, you're not going to come to me. You're going to go there. And I'm going to tell you right now, and I want you and everyone out there to hear this. In the horse industry, if you sell enough horses, somebody's going to think you fucked them. Yes. Somebody is not <laughs> going to be happy because these are living, breathing horses, and I have horses that I thought my daughter would be safe on, I threw her up there, and just because she's a little person, that horse tensed up and and had behavior that I just did not expect. I would have never. So I don't sell kid horses because I tell people, is your kid handy or is your kid like mine, and you have got your kid to where they are afraid. My, My daughter is afraid because I've bought enough horses that I don't, I don't know, you know, and I have to tell her. Don't stick your hand in there. Don't walk behind because I don't know what I've bought. I don't know what I've brought in, and it's my responsibility to keep her safe. As a parent, I'm the adult. It's my responsibility. There's a very well-known group out there right now, and I'm not going to say their name because, like, one of them's been to the NFR, and and they sell kind of cutting bread horses and whatever. So a client of mine who is fairly well-off buys a pretty expensive horse okay he gets it in 17,500 he buys it off their little auction he gets the horse home unloads it off the trailer and him and his wife are novice okay this horse is five years old and they walk it down to their round pin and she ties the horse to the round pin gate and she's going to put a winter blanket on him okay so they don't know this horse from adam and she ties it to the gate, throws the winter blanket on him in the middle of the night, and this son of a bitch comes uncorked. He sets back and lunges forward, and when he does, he hits the round pin gate hard enough that it comes unlatched. Now the gate is loose, and he's tied to it, and it's coming at him, and he goes to run backwards in a halter, you know, a, a traditional halter and lead rope. Yeah. He pulls the round pin down over the top of her. She gets life lighted. Oh. The husband 
when they finally get the horse caught, both of his eyes are bloody, his head is swollen, his eyes are swollen shut, he's got, you know, he's all cut up, and they go to untie him and start to do it and get the lead rope halfway undone, and he freaks out and starts setting back again and pops the guy's finger off. So the husband has lost the finger, the wife has been life-flighted, it is the most catastrophic, two people almost die in the making of this disaster, and, I mean, but well, if he had just not, come off of the trailer, why wouldn't you let him settle in to a new place first? Well, they, I that think the first they were going to. You know, I think they were going to. I think they were going to put him in their brand new pen that they had just put up because they were going to buy a cow or two so that they could push the cows around in it. Yeah. And um, it was not even bolted in the gray. It was just a panel around him. And, I mean... It it was really, like, I mean, a month later, I get a phone call, Tara, can you take this horse in on trade? And now the horse has some, it, and I don't know how bad they were before this, but now you can't tie him. You can't, I mean, now he's, I think it's like traumatized him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. he's now traumatized. Yeah. And so when I sell him, I'm going to have to tell the story of, like, this horse has created a nightmare for these people, like she's having to go to therapy and he had to have a finger reattached. Good and, job. Um, and I'm probably not even going to sell the horse. I'm probably just going to try to work with him and, and find him a home. But at the end of the day, like anybody like me or you or the next person, we're really probably not going to have issues with him because we're just going to get around him. Have you ever had one that's like just bad on the ground and you just kind of have to get around them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pick your battles, man. My mayor had certain quirks about her, but we, we knew it, so we worked with it. Yeah. Because yeah. the good was better than the bad. So, you know. Yep. And that, that's how we that unfortunately, that, that kind of is, so the thing that sucks about what I do is that when I buy them at public auction, nine times out of ten, the story I'm told is not, not their story. So right. I have to get them home and decide what's the truth, what's not the truth. But I can't tell you how many horses we've. I would have sold to anybody, and we go to clip it, and it like tries to paw my face off, or you just something random, you know, like some horses yeah. just have this, and you just don't know till you know, like you, yeah, you don't know until you know, and then holy crap, that's a real problem. Well, I think, and maybe you can agree with this. Uh, Yellowstone has made it to where the height of the lifestyle. I think people assume that you can just go buy it real quick. You can just go get this, get that, do this, Absolutely. do that, and be living it. Well, but horses is not like a car or a bike. Oh, or yeah. a, uh-uh. And I tell people that all the time. And and the problem is, is you have to remember that there are so many people in the horse industry that think they know, and they don't have a clue. Like I had a lady tell me the other day, well, I've sold. And I said, ma'am. You've sold horses in your life. And I said, how many horses have you sold in your life? She said, I have sold probably 10. And I said, okay, well, I sold 10 last week. My P&F number through Packers and Stockyards is like at 15,000. This is not a, this is not even a remote exaggeration. Packers and Stockyards makes you do an annual report, and you have to turn in your bills from every auction across the United States. I bought 3,000 horses out of one sell barn in a 18-month period out of Opelousas, Louisiana. Good and, Lord. Uh, and that's just a Tuesday. I mean, 
I we went to Knoxville one time and bought 152 head in one day. So there's bad buyers, there's bad horses, and in the end, the horse industry is a gamble. I don't care what anybody says. I gamble every horse I buy, and it's a gamble on every horse I sell. But I do want to cut my numbers back. My goal now is to buy auction horses and buy really a little bit better buy the better end horses and get them out of the sale barn and get them in forever homes and spend more time with my clients and just kind of do less numbers and spend more time on each horse. That's my, you know, that's where I am now, but that was not where I was when I started. It was tough. Like it. Well, I mean, you're selling and buying horses. It's not like you're selling and buying uh, a t-shirt. Like, you know, it's a lot different because horses, you know, you don't know, the history of this horse, there's no way for you to actually know if what you're being told is the truth or not. So mm-hmm. it's hard for me as a buyer to get mad at somebody who is essentially, you know, the middle person of all things. You know, it's kind of hard to do that when you're buying and selling a living, breathing animal. Absolutely. And I and I do think um, and, and horses are, act different yeah. depending on who they're around. I don't care what anybody says. If, you know, they, horses are different depending on who they're around. Some horses, like that horse you just talked about with the big ordeal, Mm -hmm. it might not ever do that around somebody else or the person that trained it or the person that raised it. It might be. You know what? I think that that story tells us is no matter what you pay for a horse and no matter what you think you know, like, it it can just go bad fast. Like, that went bad fast. I mean, they moved up from the horse they bought from me and now want to do something a little, you know, compete. And they went and bought a little more high-end horse. And um, anyway, long story short, that horse created a huge, huge, huge issue. And it's not the people who sold its fault. It's my client's fault. You know, they're my clients, too. And, and it, That's it sad stopped happened, because... Though. It sucks for the horse as much as it does the people, like everybody's yeah. hurt. Yeah. But I think that people forget when a horse weighs what they weigh and they're as big as they are, stuff can go bad fast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. People tend to forget no matter how bomb-proof, child-proof, dead-broke you say it is, and the right situation comes along and the right deal comes along, that horse will show you that it's still a horse at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. And there's no way around that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the way I look at it, and I told somebody this, I said, had I been the one that sold that horse, I would have been blamed. It would have been, you sold these people too much horse, you should have. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a horse, and they are buyer beware. They are owner beware. It is livestock. You have to, to participate at your own risk. And I do think social media needs to stop blaming I, all the way around. I see bad sellers blamed. I see bad buyers blamed. And at the end of the day, buyers and sellers both, it is a risk. I deal with people every day that I turn down that I will not sell a horse to. One horse I understand. I bought this horse and I got him home and I called a trainer and they helped me and it still didn't work. No. If you've been through three horses, three different people sold them to you, and you've called all three of them, you're not going to be happy and you're not going to put the work in that is required to own a horse that you love. It is your fault for not taking the steps to create 
an environment that you like with that horse and to instill training and values in that horse that are acceptable to you. Yeah, no, I agree 110%. If, if more people would stop long enough to actually look in the mirror before they mm-hmm. start preaching or before they start pointing the finger or doing all that kind of stuff, nine times out of ten, whatever the problem may be, because I try to do that, I try to do that a whole lot. I try to go, okay, what did I do wrong? Where did I mess up? What can I do better? Like, what did I do wrong? And people, it's like other people just don't even, they just skip right over that. They don't even, oh, even try to sure. have a conversation with it about, Please. like, you know. My philosophy is to just take the emotion out of stuff. Let's, let's take a step back. Let's remove the, my therapist. You know, I, I love therapy. I think everybody should go. I think, I think that the problem is we've all been raised by people that didn't know because they were raised by people that didn't know. And we're just, we're just a couple of generations off of people that still drove horse and buggy. Okay. So the world is vastly changing. My mom cannot help me through and navigate through some of what I'm doing because my mother did not grow up on social media and my mother did not grow up in a world where where you couldn't go home and turn off the drama. You know, you before, just hit a nail on the head with me because me and my dad are the same. The same I don't I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm just in here like my jaw just dropped when you said that because it is vastly different. It, you can't run a business the same now as you could 10 years ago. You cannot, not know. And so since you can't, for me, I absolutely think that therapy has been fantastic. And I not only have a therapist, I have a life coach. And people think that is so weird. But you know what? The world is changing. I had a past life regression done, and some of the people in that little hate group love to talk about that. And was it true? I don't know. You know, is that lady full of crap? I don't know. I had a blast. I had a blast. I went to a yoga retreat, and I went to a sound therapy session. I loved every ounce of everything that I did, and I did a past life regression, and she went through my past lives, and she can tell you, like, why some of the trouble you have today is energy you brought from. I loved it. Do you hear me? Does it mean that the next person's going to love it? No. Do you have to agree with it? No. Do I think some of what she said was bullshit? I don't know, but I had a blast. Okay, and I think that's another problem. It's common. It's human decency, man. Like, here's the deal: if somebody has a view or like, I had a blast. Cool, great. But it's like people cannot. They don't. They don't like that. They'll be negative. They'll say something like what you just said. Somebody will say something about something you like or something that you feel passionate about. Okay, well, let the girl feel passionate about it, even even if you don't like it. Who cares? You are not looking for a reason to love me, and you are not looking for a reason to be happy, and you cannot laugh, and and life is fluid, and things are going to change, and today I might feel this way, and tomorrow I feel a different way, and, and we don't, you know, if that's not you, that's okay. I, listen, there's a whole group of women on Facebook that that's also not them, and they sit in that group, and they belly ache and they waller, and they talk about me. Please go join them. They would love to have you, and you have found your people. But in a year from now, you're still going to be miserable. You're still going to be talking shit about people because let me tell you, happy people don't do that to people. Happy people are. Amen. They do not. My therapist brought that to my attention, and she said, um, people project onto you what they do. 
So what I have found is those women that are accusing me of having Google accounts and fake Facebooks, it's because they have Google accounts and fake Facebooks and fake accounts. So, and I've yeah. just learned people like that. It does, people that are looking for a reason not to like you, they're just they're just waiting, and they yeah, can be your friend of me. Do about it. There's nothing you can do, and they're just waiting for a reason. And so I was buying. I was going to buy a farm here in Oklahoma, and um, and I still might. We're we're having that discussion over dinner tonight. Like, is this? I love Texas. I miss Dallas, and I'll tell you why. I miss going to the sound bath therapy there. I miss the Vichy shower. There is a metaphysical community and a, they're very Christian based, but they are also yoga and just a very open mindset about love and light. And I miss having that. When I was in Tyler, I could zip over an hour and a half and be there. Does that make sense? Um, well, yeah, I think and I need I'm, to correct myself. I thought you were in Texas, but you're in Oklahoma. No, I'm in, Oklahoma, I'm in Oklahoma right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. My parents are That's from my here. Fault. I grew up here. Yep, I oh. grew up here. I'm same time zone. But it, it, there are certain people in this world that wake up and they just want, they want more out of life, you know. And I'm like that. I want to experience everything life has to offer because I only get one. Okay? Yeah. So yes. the horse industry is what I do for a living, but it's not who I am. Okay? So, like, when I sit down with my friends, we don't talk about horses, believe it or not. I have real, more real estate agents and attorneys and nurses than I do horse people because, I don't know, I mean, some of them have horses and we met that way, but that's just not my life, you know? Right. And so now, um, I just want to be I think people to tend to forget community. that there's a human behind the business. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I tell people all the time, like online, if you have such a problem with me, why didn't you call me and just have that conversation with me? If they would use that same effort to just do their own business, you know, as they do to try to scam other people, can you imagine how creative, like, what those people could accomplish? And I feel that way about haters. Like, if they would take the same amount of time that they spend trying to create strife and create issue and I feel like they would they would just be better off you know they would just cut oh yeah I don't know well hold on go back to the Hooter story you didn't finish that I gotta hear the rest of the Hooter story okay so I worked there forever I worked there as a hostess a waitress and then I was a bartender and I did not stop working at Hooters until I met Jacob and um, when I moved to Carthage there really wasn't one close enough, I guess I should say, to to work at it. But I loved it. I loved it. And I just got to where I had regulars and I, I would work like a double. Um, I, I literally worked Friday night, a double Saturday, a double Sunday, and Monday night football. And um, I don't know about you, but I mean, there were several weeks I made 1200 in those four days, I could make $2,000, like, around Super Bowl time or, like, when the Chili Bowl would come to Tulsa and things like that. I could make $2,000 in a weekend. And I was literally just working Friday night, double Saturday, double Sunday, and Monday night. And I hate it because I, I go to visitors now and eat sometimes. I mean, you know. They have I good buffalo like, shrimp. I don't care what they say. Uh, okay. I eat buffalo shrimp in Daytona sauce. It's my favorite <laughs> with ranch. Is that what you eat? I don't know. I think I I don't know what sauce it comes on, but I do the buffalo I love shrimp. I, love I haven't eaten there in ages, though. I actually ate there not too too long ago in Houston, and um, 
anyway, I just hate it because the Hooters has changed. Like, it used to just be so fun. And when I go in there now, it's like, I, I mean, we were packed. We used to just be packed. And we would even have to do some Saturdays or Monday night football have to do, like, cafeteria-style seating where, like, if you came and sat down at a table, we would tell you, like, please sit at the bar if you don't want to sit at a table where we'll seat additional people. You know, we would break the checks down by the seat instead of by the table. And um, I go into Hooters now, and it's just dead, and I hate that. I don't it know. It was probably 2008-ish, 2008-7-9, between that area that I worked there, um, because it was yeah. right before I met my ex-husband. And, yeah, it was packed. Like it, it was, you had a waiting list. You had people waiting to eat and it was, it was really fun. It was really fun. Really fun. And the last couple of times I've been, it's just been dead and I hate that because I love it. And I love their food. I, I mean, I don't know. Somebody said they need to upgrade their menu and I'm like, he'll no, they don't. I love their food. <laughs> it's good food. If you, I mean, who cares that it's called hooters and the waitresses I are know. young and cute. Nobody cares. Just go eat some food. <laughs> I will tell you, though, when I went in there recently, there was a girl with purple hair and a girl with tattoos, and the outfits have gotten to where they're a whole lot skimpier, and I was surprised because you couldn't have visible tattoos, you couldn't have piercings. You know, when I worked there, you couldn't have colored hair. It had to be more of like a wholesome look, you know, and we even had um, the windbreaker pants with the buttons down the side. If you worked at the bar, you had windbreaker pants with the little low-cut top. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I bartended, I wore, they were like, you know what I'm talking about, the old school windbreakers. They were yeah. orange with white stripes down the side. And um, anyway, it was just crazy to go in. And those girls had on, like, crop tops and little bitty tiny shorts and tattoos. I was shocked. I mean, I, I don't remember. Well, I didn't have tattoos back then. I didn't have any tattoos back no, then. No, so I don't remember I that. Have, I don't have tattoos, but I had friends that did. And we would meet an hour before work or more and get ready together and I would have to help with the Sally Henson leg paint. We would uh-huh. cover, you know, prime and cover their tattoos just so they could go to work. I mean, you could not have a visible tattoo. Couldn't have dyed They were strict on like your socks because back then we had the white socks. I don't even think they have the white yeah. socks like they did back they then. They don't and I loved them. I loved the pantyhose and socks. I yeah, they were funny about that. Day. Love. I am a girl's girl, and I think that's also really tough because there's really not a lot of those out there. Yeah. Like, I've always... There's not. Nope. I think all females are amazing, and we are all gross, okay? I don't care. When he started telling me about this and that, listen, I am a firm believer that we are all humans, and if you honestly believe that you are better than the next girl and a man or somebody's not going to do to you what they did to them because, no. And I feel that way about friends, too. Like, if somebody will sit and talk shit about you to me, girl, I am next. As soon as they go to Sally Sue's house, they are going to be talking shit about me to her. So I just do not, I do not entertain it. I do not have that in my life, like, if you come to me with a problem about somebody, it better be because you want me to help you fix it. It better be, right. hey, did you hear that such and such as truck broke down and it's a brand new truck and they just bought it? And I'm going to tell you, like, are they broke down? Do we need to go get them? Like, do they yeah. need to borrow my truck while theirs is in the shop? Like, what? What's the point? And, you know, it's just, yeah. 
it's jealousy. You know, somebody bought a new truck and it broke down and ha, ha, ha. No, that's not funny to me, like, girl. Because well, I don't want to hear do about... anybody any good because, you know, the no. person that is talking the crap, they look they look bad. I mean, to me and you, I look at stuff like that and I'm like, I, I think the same way that you think. I'm like, okay, so you're going to do this to me yeah. so that That is one thing that I crack up about. Somebody will talk their head off bad about somebody to you, and then the next week you see them together. And I'm going to tell you right now, I stay away from, from friend groups like that because I do not want to be the subject of anybody's conversation, and I don't, I don't want people to be the subject of my conversation. I want to have friends that discuss ideas, creativity. Yeah. Um, th- that is, and I've always said, like, when God wants to bless you, he'll send a person, but when the devil wants to get to you, he'll send a person. And so I always wonder when I meet people, are you a lesson or are you a blessing? Because there's really, that's, and you know what? I don't even get mad anymore when people are a lesson. I just learn, like, that's part of it, and I'm not going to dwell on it. And I just don't, I don't let the negativity affect me like I used to. And that's why I think I've gotten so strict about who I allow in my inner circle, because I have had people that have absolutely turned on me. And it's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because you said you have a little mean group of girls, and you get it. I don't have to tell you. they. A hate, a little hate group can be, um, it can be devastating until you learn how to handle it. Well, I think it, for me personally, if I already know that you're a hater and I see it and I already seen it coming, I'm not phased. It's really not affecting me. It's just kind of like, I look at it like, okay, I saw that coming. Are you serious right now? But if it's somebody that, um, was very close to me, and we were really close because I don't have very, very many people in my circle, if any. <laughs> so if it's somebody that was really close to me and then they hurt me something like that, like that, that'll cut deep. That'll really cut me. And I'm, I'm just like, it, okay, i got to get away from this. you got to stay over absolutely. there and I'm going to stay over here. Well, and I think that goes back to where people say that, and I have gotten really, really forgiving in my older, like as I get older, because life is really short and I make mistakes. And people are going to make mistakes. And so what I've learned, and this is my rule, I call it my malicious rule, was did they do that to me with malicious intent or was it just, because people are going to hurt you. I mean, you're saying it it is very gray, the closer or not closer, the more important the person is to you. It's more of a gray area compared to somebody that's off to the street or just somebody that you don't don't know. I'm the type of person just to say, okay, this is just, I don't even like. This is not worth it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if it's somebody that's close to me and somebody that I've known for a long time and things like that, I try to step back and, like you said before, take the emotion out of it and look at the logical mm-hmm. aspect of it. Because you're right. We are all human. Not, no, none of us are perfect. We are going to mess up. We have messed up. We will do it again. But I think, like what you said, it's a situational basis. You know, was that malicious? Like, did you intend to hurt me or was it just a mistake? Mm-hmm. That's right. So, and, like, so the people that sit in that group and discuss everything I do, that is malicious. They are maliciously yeah. setting out every day to try to hurt my business, to hurt my feelings, to have some no kind of an impact on my life. No respect. No respect for the fact I'm a mom, a daughter, I have staff members. The economical impact that I bring to the people and the my surroundings. You know, sometimes people have called the veterinarians that I've used trying to warn them about, oh, she's, you know, got an online hate group. 
if I'm enlisting a veterinarian to take care of horses that I have purchased, at what point is what you're doing not malicious? And at what point and what you're doing not what happens if the vet doesn't want to come treat a horse of mine because of you and the horse suffers? Do you really think that you're hurting me? Do you see what you I'm know, saying? Forget so, all of that. They that 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 group, those people that's the problem. Forget the vet, forget the barn, the show, any of that. Take you out of it. Those people have a problem. That is a massive problem because like, I'm just starting to get heated even sitting here listening about it because, to me, I, I have never in my life taken it upon myself to purposely want to hurt, stop, or hinder somebody or something else. I, that is a problem. That's a you know, here's the thing. So, so think about it. I'm paying stall rent to the arena owner who is going to be able to improve their venue based on having, you know, an extra couple of thousand dollars a month. I've sold horses for the arena owner since I've been there. You know, that money's going to go into improving and, and everybody's experience. I've had two veterinarians that I put the money in their pocket. Um, I'm buying $2,500 worth of alfalfa, another um, ton of feed, which costs $1,200. Think about the impact that I have on the local commerce and the local, you know, local people. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot going on. Um that people are not taking into consideration. Like, you might not like me, but at what point do you not realize that you're affecting a lot more besides me? Like, yeah, yeah. no regard for the horses in my care or what's best for them. No regard for the staff yeah. that I put money in their pocket. No regard for the economical impact that I have. You know, that's what, what bothers me is that these people online are so selfish. Malicious people are selfish. They only care. And then, they justify it like a narcissist because, oh, well, I uh, was just looking out for, look out for yourself. Look out for you. You worry about you. You worry about you, and you're looking out for you. So you be focused on you. You don't need to worry about the vet, the farrier. The, you are not the self-appointed judge and jury. Like, you need to sit down. People also have very subjective morals. If somebody yeah. they like is doing something unscrupulous, it's okay. But if somebody they don't like is doing it, it's a problem. Yeah. And that is something I've learned is that the Internet gives a lot of people very, very, very subjective, very subjective morals. I mean, and that's, that's a whole other podcast. But that's, you know, the Internet's a problem. And it's not just a problem for the horse industry. It's a problem all the way around. I mean... It's just part of the horse industry. And I've told people, I just buy the horse in front of me. And if I like it, great. If I don't, great. But you can lie to me, and I'll still buy another horse from you if you have the right horse that I think I can do do with. I'm a good enough horseman that if you get over on me, you know, shame on me. And that's what I think is missing in this world, too, is just accountability. I mean, this is what I do for a living. And um, I know horses are buyer beware. And so I let everything you say kind of go in one ear and out the other, and I just assess the horse standing in front of me. And I've told people, um, there are some people I won't buy horses from at this point because I'm two or three horses in, and they've been drugged. or they've been. It, it's not just what you told me. It's you went out of your way to drug these horses, whether it be for crippled horses or, or for horses with real bad behavior. And that's where I kind of draw the line. But I've bought people 
of course, stop people. Oh, it's a good kid horse. Make it at home. It's not a kid horse. But I still like the horse. I just need to sell it to an adult, you know. And I'll have another one available, and I'm not too scared. You know, the horses I've bought are not probably what they told me, but I still like the horses okay. You can be my worst. Somebody that absolutely hates me and has talked bad about me, and I see you on the side of the road broke down, and I'll still pull over and help you. And somebody said, oh, I'm not fake enough for that. I said, I'm not fake. That's just my character. Like, what somebody does to me is not my responsibility, but my reaction is. And the way that I'm a steward of the world around me is my responsibility. And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm like that. I have no, I have no ill intent, and I have yeah. no desire to hold a grudge. And it doesn't matter what you've done to me. I can still be cordial to you because that's my character. And it took right. me a long time. It took, that took me a long time. That, that's a whole other level of maturity. <laughs> because for yeah. a very long time, that was not the case for me. I was, I was hot tempered. It's and very it. easy mm-hmm. to react because most of the time, the people, and if an honest person makes a mistake and you have a, a difference of opinion or something happens, an honest, good person is going to take into account your feelings and you're going to have mm-hmm. a normal conversation about it. And that it's pretty, Good. Like, I look in that group, and the amount of people that comment have never done business with me. Yeah, that's a red and, flag right there, too. But you're in here discussing it. So we'll just say that there's five to eight people that have made posts, and they were unhappy with my, with my business dealings with them personally. And you know what? I do thousands of courses a year. Like, I look at it the opposite. I'm like, hell yeah. That, that is, that is like less than 1%. You see what I'm saying? That is less than 1%. And so it, people don't take that into account either is how much business I do compared to the unhappy, you know, the unhappy customers. There's just a huge, but nobody in that particular group of people wants to discuss the good dealings. They only allow the bad dealings to be posted. Right. And, so, well, yeah. what does that tell you? Well, yeah. That yeah, tells you all you need to know right there. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and I'm glad yeah. that you finally got the time to talk We're to there. me. So, 